Hey guys, Bear Grylls here just to say super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember above all, never give up. Now I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. I had the opportunity to go up there and bet on a Seawolf class submarine that broke through through this giant ice sheet to surface. I spent a couple days in helicopters, submarines, snowmobiles, tooling around the Arctic Circle. That was Navy SEAL Kaj Larson, and it's time for Great Adventures. Pleasure to chat with you today. Such a fan of all the work. I've been following your post-service career, post-military career, and it just seems like you're making the most out of the the skills and just you know getting out there, getting after it. Let's start initially. What brought you into the service? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was uh, it was a circuitous path to uh, BUDS, which is uh, SEAL training. It stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL. But I like to say that everybody has to find their own way to BUDS or has to find their own way to the SEAL teams. My path is uniquely mine. But essentially for me, um, it really came out of the product of my upbringing. Both my my father had served in the Marine Corps. My grandfather had served in the Navy in World War II. So I knew that service was important to me. Uh, I played water polo in high school, and then I was recruited to play water polo in college. I went to the Naval Academy to play water polo. But at the time, I thought I was going to fly going to be a naval aviator. I had taken flying lessons and, and all that stuff. Uh, watched a lot of Top Gun. And uh, then uh, <laughs> I'd never even heard of SEALs. I didn't even know what they were. And then I, I went to the academy and I played water polo with some really phenomenal guys. And a lot of them were going into this other community called Naval Special Warfare, which is the SEAL teams. And so I slowly started to learn about the Maritime Naval Commando Force of the U.S. military I think this is the place for me. And I thought that was the right challenge for me. So I ultimately ended up finding myself in uh, first phase of buds. I'm wearing one of, one of those helmets that's, that's right behind me there. Actually, those are, those are the last two phases. The green one is the first phase. But uh, as, a, as a young, fresh naval officer, ready to start SEAL training. But uh, you know what's kind of crazy is that, I mean, you're in New York. You know, I entered SEAL training. I was in first phase of SEAL training on... September 11th, 2001. So I was just like a couple weeks in, I was a, a, a little baby tadpole trying to grow up into a, a big bad frogman. And, but the, the world and certainly the SEAL community fundamentally changed after that. Tell me about some of the challenges of going through BUDS. It's so interesting. Um, I've heard people say that BUDS exposes every weakness. And I found that in my experience to be fundamentally true. If you have a character flaw, if you have a physical injury, if you have, 
if you're there for the wrong reasons, cause like you think it's cool and you're going to be a Hollywood seal, it exposes all of, all of these weaknesses because essentially what Buds does is it, it kind of grinds you down to your basic essence. And it really asks you like, it tests the metal of, of who you are. Uh, it does that in a variety of ways. The stuff that you see all those physical challenges that you watch in the videos running with boats and logs and being cold and wet and sandy and doing all that physical training, but it also tests you intellectually. You know, a lot of people don't realize that in second phase, which is dive phase where you learn the esoteric art of, of combat diving and combat swimming, some guys flunk out because they can't pass the dive physics test. And I remember with one of my fellow officers and a, and a guy named Morgan Luttrell, like staying up super late tutoring some of our uh, fellow guys from our, our class in dive physics, right? So that they could pass the test the next day. So it's not just all bang, bang, shoot them up, knock out the push-ups. And I, you know, I would argue that it tests you emotionally, tests you spiritually, if you believe in that kind of stuff. My class for just brass tacks started with 200. I was class 237, seeing the helmets behind me. My, uh, my class started with 246 dudes, and we graduated 26 originals. So as you insinuated, there's this kind of like reckoning that happens throughout the process. And, you know, uh, of those 26 guys, 24 are still alive. Two got killed in Afghanistan June 28th, 2005. But yeah, those are, you know, obviously some of my closest friends in life because we went through so much together. Really what this podcast about is, is a travel experience or a time that you went adventuring into the world and you came back a different person. I know I've had many of those experiences myself and I think that's one of the things that we can all share, whether you're a Nat Geo explorer or just a person that goes for a summer vacation. You can go somewhere and it changes you for the rest of your life. So whether that was in the service or, or post your military career, tell me about one time that you sort of went somewhere and came back a completely different person. One of the coolest trips that I've ever had the opportunity to take because it, a lot of my interests kind of dovetailed together was when I had the opportunity to travel to the Arctic Circle. We were looking at this neo-Cold War that was developing at the top of the Arctic Circle. So uh, the polar ice caps are melting there's all these natural resources underneath the polar ice caps. And um, now both like Russia has built a new special forces division. That's an Arctic brigade devoted to Arctic um, Chinese subs are playing around underneath the Arctic. So all these like, you know, near peer competitors and strategic challenges for the U S um, and, and we, we have uh, like a toehold up there because of Alaska and because of our strategic proximity to it. So it's this very important strategic region. Uh, all these militaries are starting to play up there. I had the opportunity to go up there embed on a, a Naval submarine, you know, my parent service and, and spend some time under the ice. We actually were on a sea wolf class submarine that broke through the ice through this giant ice sheet and we were able to, to surface. And I spent a couple days in helicopters, submarines, snowmobiles, tooling around the Arctic circle. And uh, look, if, if I had my druthers, like I would do every national security story in Costa Rica where I get to surf every day. But like, this was out of my comfort zone. It was cold at night. You had to, uh, if you had to, you know, go take a leak, you had to walk outside with a shotgun in case there was a polar bear, right? And at the same time, like my photographer 
my director of photography has traveled with me all over the world, Afghanistan, South America, Asia, Middle East, and Africa. At one time, he like wakes me up in the middle of the night. He's like, dude, dude, come outside, grab the shotgun, come outside. We go outside and then like saw the northern lights above us. So this extraordinary thing. So I was in a place that was kind of unfamiliar. I'm not that great in the snow. I didn't do that great during like winter warfare training in the SEAL teams or whatever. So I sort of pushed the boundaries of my comfort zone to go on this epic journey up into the Arctic Circle. And what I saw there was like truly, truly phenomenal. I saw these issues and I'm trying to think how to describe it. You, you had a you had an astronaut on, on the show a while back. Yeah, yeah, Mike Massimino. Did any of those guys talk about the, the overview effect? They talk about that at all? My buddy is uh, actually currently the commander of the International Space Station, a SEAL who I who I served with and who's, who's my friend, Captain Chris Cassidy, like extraordinary guy. And Chris talked to me once about this thing called the overview effect, sort of unique phenomena to astronauts when you, you leave Earth and look back on it in a way that uh, you see that things in a way that you were never supposed to kind of man wasn't designed to see Earth from 250 miles away. And he says the, the meta thing that happens when you, when you go into space for the first time is you do really realize that like all these lines that we have like carved up over the globe on a map, like they're all arbitrary, right? And everything is so interconnected. So he sees like a storm forming off the coast of New Zealand, which is connected like to another storm system. And he sees like continents that are connected by oceans. And he says it doesn't sound profound, but it feels profound to the astronaut. That's what happened to me on this trip to the Arctic, right? I had the sense that here I was in like this insanely remote region where polar bears are the apex predators and, and, you know, humans are this like this, this little blip on it, but it's fundamentally being affected by all of these actions all over the globe, like the melting of, of the polar ice caps, you know, due to, due to carbon and climate change. Um, so you had this idea that this small little place on earth, not only was like everything that was happening by all the other humans on the planet affecting this place at the top of the world that I was on, but that impact had huge national security implications. And like, so you saw all of this confrontation conflict that was happening between militaries, some of which are foes, but some of which are also our friends like Canada and the U S who are supposed to be allies, like have all this uh, jockeying for position up there in the Arctic. Um, And anyways, when I was there, I, I saw it all come together in this kind of like really, really, interesting, fascinating way. And, and for me, it was a lesson. I've been to Afghanistan a million times. I've done like a bunch of wars, small, dirty wars on the African continent, South America, narco-trafficking, like done that a million times. But when I really like stepped out of my comfort zone and pushed the boundaries of, of my own experience, it was really, really like a phenomenal learning curve. All my other experiences in a submarine were in the service on active duty, and it was much more mission focused. And we were just kind of riders, and and you know they've converted a lot of the old ballistic missile submarines to spec ops platforms. Um, so we do a lot of stuff off them, and we do a lot of training and and, and all that. But this was the first time that I kind of got to be there as like a tourist. And I got to like really interact with like some of the enlisted sailors, like in a way that I I normally wouldn't when I was there with a job and work to do. And so it was like an amazing experience. One, it reminded me, you know, that the SEAL teams are this like isolated parochial community within the Navy, right? And so there's all of these other jobs and people who are serving and contributing in different ways. And 
you know, in the aggregate, the submariners, the the men and now women of the the submarine service, the average IQ there is probably significantly higher than anywhere else within the Navy. And I'm including my own community. You know, they have to go to nuke power school and they have to like learn how the reactor works and all of these complex systems in order to survive underwater. Sometimes the only thing that limits those submarine guys is the amount of food that they can carry on board. They make their own water, they make their own oxygen. Um, So they're literally like each sailor is individually responsible for like keeping this thing going during these, you know, incredible period, like long periods of time underwater. So it gave me like a lot of admiration and respect for like other members of, of my service. But it was also just like to see what, what they do in these with technology now is extraordinary. We would literally be cruising under the ice. We were actually tracking people walking on the ice, right? They had no idea that there was a nuclear powered submarine 20 feet below them tracking them. It is was so eerie and so incredible. Just a mind-blowing experience. And then that feeling of breaking through the ice, yeah. nothing better than getting out of the submarine after you've enjoyed your ride, of course, but getting out of it. I mean, what's it like to open up the hatch and, and get to walk on ground and walk on that ice? It was like being on the dark side of the moon, man. Like here I am like in a sub eating in the wardrobe with the officers, you know, having, having some good food, you know, walking around, checking out the torpedoes. Then a couple days later, we smash through this ice flow. I mean, imagine like how hard that steel has to be to get through like a sheet of ice that's like six or seven feet thick, right? It shatters through. We pop the hatch. We come out. I felt like something out of like a Star Wars movie. Like I was on some wild planet. And also you just look and it's just like miles and miles as far as the eye can see of just white sheets of ice. And you're like, I can't believe that anything lives out here. Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistlepig Whiskey. They're American rice perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram, at Whistlepig Whiskey. You have the business of drugs on Netflix right now, which is such a incredible series. Narcos is such a huge and popular show. It's, it fits really well with what they've done in the past. So I'd love to start by just talking about some of those operations that you did early in your career that made you familiar with this kind of content in this subject matter. So interestingly enough, you know, I'm a post 9-11 SEAL. So the vast majority of my career was devoted to counterterrorism in different spots around the world, the global war on terror. Uh, Very early in my career as the GWAT, as we call it, was kicking off. We were still involved in a lot of 90s era operations supporting counter drug missions. Eventually, they started calling those counter narcotics terrorism uh, missions, which I'll get to in a second. But very early on as a young junior officer, I was actually sent down to one of our SEAL units in, in Southcom, which is Southern Command. And I got to work with some of our uh, international counterparts, uh, like the Panamanian Navy and the Costa Rican Navy and the Colombian Navy. And then I went down and worked with the Colombian Special Forces 
doing what were essentially counter drug operations, looking for narco subs, looking for clandestine laboratories in the jungle. And so that was kind of my, my first taste of the narcos experience. Also my first taste of Colombian culture. Right. And so then you and everybody else, when I watched, you know, narcos on TV many years later, like I, I had been to Medellin, I had been to Pablo Escobar's ranch. Um, and so I had a real palpable feel for narco trafficking. And then later in my career at Vice, I really covered narco trafficking pretty extensively. I was, I don't know if burnt out is the right word, but I had spent a lot of time in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia doing counterterrorism work. Frankly, I was I needed a break and I needed to change theaters and the drug wars in Mexico were really heating up. So I went to places like Culiacan, which is the capital of Sinaloa, which is where the Sinaloa Federation is headquartered. Sinaloa Federation is the largest drug cartel in the world. And I started using some of my, my former soft skills, soft uh, as an acronym for Special Operations Forces, <laughs> and my soft <laughs> skills, like my ability to talk to people, uh, both my soft and my soft skills, to kind of really try and penetrate these narco-trafficking worlds. So, and I also used my, uh, my relationships. When I was in Afghanistan, I had actually bunked up with some DEA guys in Afghanistan, real cowboys, great guys, door-kicking every day, really liked those guys. And, and so I had a really good, strong working relationship with the DEA that allowed me when I traded my gun for a camera to go back to the DEA with, with some degree of trust. They're allowing me to embed on a, a DEA kinetic operation overseas in Honduras, which at the time was the one of the deadliest places in the world, deadlier than Afghanistan per capita and stuff. Um, so there was a real bulk of my career post my active duty time covering the drug wars. And I was I was really deep into to narco trafficking and narco culture. So that was the foundation that laid the seeds for creating the series Business of Drugs, which is, which is now on Netflix. And um, I basically used every informant, every drug dealer, every DEA agent I knew. I had a, a guy who specialized purely in drug tunnels in Mexico who I called up. That was a, a real like niche like specialty knew where like all these drug tunnels were. I called up everybody I knew who was adjacent to or directly involved in the world of narco trafficking. And I really like shake the trees to kind of paint this international picture of, of the, the global narcotics trade. Um, and I decided that the, the real way to, to analyze it and look at it was through the lens of, of economics. And I thought by doing so that would reveal some, some really interesting ways and, and practices and methodologies of, of these large cartels. Yeah, and absolutely you did that. I'd love to hear a little bit about your initial experience in Colombia. I did a story on Pablo Escobar around the time that Narcos was about to kick off, linked up with a old police officer that was working at the time of Pablo who had his friends threatened. He was a colorful character as they all are. He understands what people think and, and also he developed a humor about it these terrible, terrible things that were happening. It was just such a beautiful place, contrasted by this unfortunate history. What were your first impressions? And tell me about sort of meeting the people and getting to experience that place under that situation. Was that in Medellin? Where, where you that was that in Medellin. Yeah, 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 I mean, obviously, like home of Pablo. Medellin is this 
unbelievable city, like uh, incredible. I love Medellin. I mean, I guess what I, I guess what I'll first say is my first impression is like, oh my God, look at all of the beautiful women. It had to be said. <laughs> yeah, my friends would call me out for being dishonest on, on your podcast if I, but I actually think it's, that was actually relevant to many of the ways in which the cocaine trade in Colombia influenced the culture, right? So there's this narco culture element, right? Medellin is still to this day, one of the plastic surgery capitals of the world. And so you see people from all over South America coming to Medellin for like these enhancements. And, and some of my friends actually sort of tether that to the days of, of trafficking in, in Colombia. But most of my experiences early days in Colombia were, were not in Medellin. I went back there as a journalist, but in uniform in a place called Buenaventura, which is a port city in Colombia. And at the time and still real time today, much of the cocaine was moving from a maritime trafficking perspective. So a lot of it's moving by sea, right? Cocaine moves across the world in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of forms. But uh, one of the dominant methods of transportation and distribution is, is maritime. So there are Colombian special forces that operate out of Buenaventura. When I lived on the base there, one of the things that they have are the um, what they call the semi-submersible, basically the narco subs, the narco submarines. And there's like easily a dozen, if not two to three dozen different varieties of narco subs that have been captured by on operations like the ones that we were doing. So a lot of what we were doing was kind of the equivalent of riverine warfare in the uh, SEAL teams. We have a special unit that's devoted to riverine warfare. And we were down there training the Colombians in riverine tactics in order to do interdictions on, on drug traffickers. This is the most amazing place in the world where people dance salsa and drink agua diente till, you know, seven in the morning, right? Uh, that everybody goes to breakfast, like, because it's the most awesome, fun party culture in, in the world with like this really, really incredibly violent history. And like some of my like dear and close Colombian friends to these days, they would, especially those from, from Medellin um, or from Cali, would talk about like, oh yeah, like when we were 16, like there were days we just couldn't go to school because there was like shootouts in the street. I mean, look, people now know because it's popularized in, in Narcos, but you know, Pablo sent a tank to parliament, right? <laughs> it's just insanity, stuff you don't think of anymore. But I will say what, one of the things that I tried to document in the Business of Drugs series is as, as Wild West as Columbia was back then and, and, and the FARC and the paramilitary is obviously like a huge destabilizing force in the country, that has largely shifted, right? And the reason that that has shifted was germane and significant to the entire premise of my series, which is that drug cartels operate as multinational corporations, and one of the things that happened is that the Colombian cartels post Pablo recognized that they were in significant risk. So like any good corporation, they made a business decision to outsource distribution to the Mexicans. So they still controlled the means of production, which was making cocaine in the jungle. And I've been with cartel guys like in the mosh pits, making the basic paste and, and all of that stuff. So they still control all of that. But then they just like get it to the Mexicans to get the final mile to the big consumers in, you know, the land of Walmart. Right. And that decision in the post Pablo era had incredibly significant consequences 
for Mexico. And actually the rise of violence in Mexico over, you know, 60,000 people killed in, in a year in, 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 in the war on drugs in Mexico. That's a direct result of the business decision by the Colombians to outsource distribution to the Mexicans. Their logic, which makes sense if you think like a CEO, is that we are going to marginally reduce our profits by not owning the entire supply chain, right? But we're going to drastically reduce risk. We decided to kind of follow the money. And when you follow like a package of cocaine, push to street, you really do start to understand the calculating logic of cartels because they operate the same way Apple or the basic principle was like, look at it through the lens of economics, right? Uh, and then we had to further break it down. And the series is basically loosely organized by drugs. So the first episode is cocaine, uh, bush to streets, right? And we ended up doing four international-ish episodes and, and two kind of domestic episodes. One of those things you have to consider when you're doing a series like this is, you know, there's still inherent dangers, not something that you're unfamiliar with. Again, talking to my friends who worked on the show Narcos, you know, they lost a location scout because they were sort of digging around in a certain area. Pales in comparison to just the daily numbers that come out of some of these areas that are still operating under these cartels. So, you know, what were you guys doing as far as security? You know, how did you sort of approach that element of, of the job, that unfortunate element of the job? You do your best to mitigate risk, like absolutely, by using sort of vetted and trusted sources, people I had worked with in the past. Obviously, when you're on the, the law enforcement side, when we were working with the DEA, that was pretty easy. I trust those guys and it was generally like relatively safe. On the illicit side, it's really harder. I just tried to treat it like uh, a SEAL operation, right? I had contingency planning, I had backup. Sometimes we had security, sometimes we hired local security. Most of the time though, the truth is if you wanna go into like a drug lab, right? There's no way you're bringing security with you. So you just have to do your best to have contingency and backup plans know that you vetted the people, send people in advance. But at some point, it's a calculated risk. And that's just the reality of trying to penetrate an illicit network. What was the most sort of out of bounds trip that you guys had to do? What was the location that took the most planning? I guess I'll phrase it like that. I don't want to say I have a favorite episode, but uh, like one of the things that was new and interesting and opaque to me was a new trafficking route that was coming out of Afghanistan. And this is in the heroin in the third episode, which is the heroin episode. So there's this new trafficking route that's coming out of Afghanistan over the Khyber Pass into Pakistan, dropping down and moving on boats down the uh, east coast of Africa, and then eventually into, into the slums of Africa, and then mules transport it out to Asia and the rest of the world. So we filmed a scene that you can see in episode three in the Kibera slums, which is one of the largest slums in Africa. It's in Nairobi. I think there's over a million people living in it. Um, actually kind of an extraordinary and, and interesting place, but we filmed a drug mule swallowing bags of heroin in his little shack that was lit by solar power. Um, it looked like, you know, what I do is real. Like there's nothing I do that's fake in filmmaking, but I actually felt like I had constructed a movie set the way this was. This seemed like something out of like the best or worst episode of Narcos 
you've ever seen. So this guy just swallowing multiple bags of heroin. And then we were able to, to follow him the next day as he got on a flight and, and, and went to Asia to deliver his product, came back the next day with 5,000 bucks worth of Chinese yuan in his pocket. And to me, that was everything you need to know it's emblematic of the whole series. Like it's everything you need to know about the global narcotics trade, right? You got Afghan heroin coming through Pakistan into a slum in Kenya, shotgunned out to Asia. Um, that's it. That's, that's the entire supply chain. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that was really fascinating, but, uh, the, the difficulty of, of penetrating those, those networks in, in Africa, it was a different challenge. I've spent so much time in Latin America doing that same thing. And I've spent time in Africa in uniform, in conflict zones, but penetrating those illicit networks in, in Africa on, from a trafficking perspective was, was new and challenging for me. Did you go to any places that you were unfamiliar with during the series? I don't think there was anywhere that I hadn't been before. And part of the reason for that was that we were relying deeply on networks that I had been building for a decade. So there was nowhere, there was nowhere brand new, like depending on how wide you draw the circle, but at a very granular level, I had like, there were like parts of Chicago that I had never stepped foot in (laughs) um, things like that. But yeah, no, no. I mean, in fact, I would say that was even one of the techniques of risk mitigation is that I was working primarily with people. You have to work with people you trust because they have almost no incentive to do what you're asking them to do, which is an illegal act on camera. I do want to get into you being a Navy SEAL, being a frogman. And I actually just have a question for you. When is the wettest you've ever felt? (laughs) What operation, what place in the world, where were you on a mission where you were like, this is the wettest I'll ever be? I mean, the truth is the wettest that I've ever been is during Hell Week. So Hell Week is generally considered the hardest week of the hardest military training in the world. And part of the principle there is you want to get as close to simulating combat as you can to see who's going to like fold under pressure. But essentially, Hell Week is this, this five-day-long crucible through which all SEALs have to go and where you sleep very little. I think I slept like a total of like maybe two hours over the course of that week. And that first night, you're running... 20, 30 miles, some of it with like boats and logs. And it's just, it's all physical. And it's in each phase, first phase, second phase, third phase, there's an evolution that you lose most people. This is the evolution where most people quit is, is hell week in first phase. And you start off wet and sandy and you're basically wet for the entire five days. And I remember there was an instructor who had what it seemed like at the time, like uh, a particular like dislike for me. He just didn't like my California kid style for, for whatever reason. And he kind of seemed to have it in for me. And I, I don't know if it's like, sometimes the instructors have it in for you in a good way because they like you. And sometimes they have it in for you because they really dislike you. And those guys, they're, they're the gatekeepers of the community, right? Because um, once you graduate for buds, those guys, they're just taking a break from the operational SEAL teams. A lot of those guys will rotate back and you'll serve with them downrange and overseas. So they really consider themselves the gatekeepers and they want to weed out anybody who doesn't make the standard of, of being in a SEAL platoon. So this one particular instructor didn't like me. I did something 
to piss him off. And I just remember him. I don't remember what time, like four in the morning on one of the days, Monday night, Tuesday night, it all starts to blend after a while. I remember him making me lie on the cement in the, the middle of the night. I, just, I think it was definitely the second day. I was pretty miserable already by this point. And he was taking a hose and he was just like misting me for like a half hour. He was just like misting me, misting me, misting me. And I could feel my core temperature dropping. I was getting colder and colder because at first you're, you're shivering and shivering is actually your body's response and reflex to generate heat. That's why your muscles are contracting. You're trying to, to generate internal heat to keep you safe when you're, when you're starting to get hypothermic. But anyways, I eventually passed out right there on the cement. They took my core temperature, nice little thing we like to call the silver bullet, but whatever. I was, I was passed out and apparently my core temperature was 88.9 degrees. So normal human body temperature is 98.6. The interesting thing about the human body is the temperature range. It's like, it's pretty small, right? And think about if you have 103 fever, it's only five degrees up, feel like you're dying. And similarly, like in the other direction, you know, 93 degrees is the coldest you've ever felt in your life. So here I am passed out hypothermic at 88 degrees, cold and wet, on the cement floor in the morning. And when you're that cold, they do active rewarming for you. It's not just like, oh, let's dry you off. So they basically like throw you in like a hot tub to like get your core body temperature back up. And I remember they got my core body temperature back up to like 96 degrees. It took like, I think 17 minutes to get me like, you know, to a reasonable warmth period again. So I'm, I'm still wet. I get out of the hot tub. You just have these like... Uh, these shorts on, they're like bicycle shorts that are supposed to prevent chafing, but at this point, they're definitely not preventing chafing or whatever. Tell me off. And I remember them handing me a nice dry pair of, of camis, the, the, the camouflage uniform, the old woodland camo uniform that you go through buds with. It was like the, f and the first time I had felt anything warm or dry in like two or three days. And I was like, oh, this is heaven. Like it was like a fresh baked croissant or something. I just wanted to like smell it and like hold it and absorb the heat from it. Cause at 96 degrees, you're still like a little cold, right? It's not like you feel better. Right. And uh, you know, you're just awake and cold as opposed to passed out and cold. So anyways, they hand me this like nice dry set of camis after they do my little like med check for me or, or whatever. And they're like, Hey, here's your fresh brand new dry camis. Go put them on in the ocean. <laughs> and so I was like dry and I just didn't want it. It was the only moment I was like, wait, I don't want to do this. Like I definitely do not want to do this. Like it was the only moment that I was dry for five days. That was like, you know, seven minutes when I had those and I like, slowly walked out to the ocean and put them on. And that was, that was it. So that is far and away the wettest I've ever been. <laughs> oh, that's insane. How'd you stay up? That's another thing. Is So how'd you just stay awake? Was it just like that constant prodding from them that kept you awake? Yeah, it's constant motion. So you're always moving. You're always running. One of the most excruciatingly painful experiences, you know, is on like final night, they do this thing called around the world where you and your, your boat crew are like, uh, have to paddle around Coronado Island in this like inflatable rubber boat. And I don't know how long it takes because time is like, a dolly clock there. Like time is morphed during a week when you haven't slept for five days or whatever. I think it takes like eight or 10 hours or something. So you're like paddling around this crazy Island and you're so tired. Like there's some guy yelling stroke, 
stroke, stroke. And like every like couple of minutes, you'll hear like a like splash. And it's because like someone has fallen asleep while paddling and fallen into the ocean. Then you got to like grab your boat crew guy and bring him back into the boat, you know, and start to like paddle again or whatever. So at that point, you're delirious. You're hallucinating. Uh, I remember seeing like an aircraft carrier levitate, which as cool as the U.S. Navy is, like we don't have levitating aircraft carriers yet, stuff like that. So no, you get through and stay awake by constant motion and constant activity. How do you feel on the other end of it? Miserable, like your whole body. You know, they say it takes four years off your life. I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly not good for you. You're swollen up like a balloon. You're laying in bed for two days, peeing in Gatorade bottles because you're too weak to get up. No, it's a absolutely like miserable experience coupled with being an absolutely amazing experience because you've just accomplished such a great thing. That's what I wanted to get was I just, I feel like getting on the other side of that's just got to feel so good as far as your ability to persevere. The best. So I wrap this thing up with two questions. Yeah. Uh, The first one is if I hand you a plane ticket right now, where would you go and what would you do? So look, my normal like knee jerk default answer is I go back to Costa Rica because it has some of like the best spear fishing and best surfing in the world. And that's kind of a go-to for me to, to relax. That is like a happy place. Uh, but the truth is I also like to push the envelope. I've never been to uh, Australia or New Zealand. So I would probably do some kind of triple hop. First, I'd go Australia and surf. Then I'd go to New Zealand and hunt some tuna. And then I'd go to, since I'm in the neighborhood, I'd probably hit Papua New Guinea because it's hard to keep me away from a good war zone. And they've had like a thousand year tribal conflict zone going there. So sorry, I just, I just cost you an expensive multi-part, multi-leg journey ticket, but that's what I'm doing. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. You had a good answer. Those were all good answers. The last question is, if I say the perfect sunset, what place comes to your mind? You know... There's definitely water involved, and I think any sunset on pretty much any ocean is good for me. I will say that I think Hawaii is one of the most incredible places in the world. Not super exotic, but there's a a beach on Kauai called Larson's Beach, uh, not named after me, although I'd like to think so. I've seen some pretty cool sunsets in, in Hanalei and on the North Shore of Kauai, so that's a pretty happy place for me. The sun came up, the world began to shake. Exposing all my own mistakes If I could do anything Then this wouldn't be happening It's been a long time Since I feel courageous Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up Sleep, never to awaken. 